Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Today on this show, I'm talking to Rich Bainey, who's chairman of the board, president, and CEO of the E.W. Scripps Company. Scripps, a media giant with 2015 revenues of $3 billion, owns 33 television and 34 radio stations operating in 17 states, reaching one out of every five U.S. households. Before joining the Scripps corporate staff in 1988, Mr. Bainey was a business reporter and editor at the Cincinnati Post. He's also on the board of directors of the Associated Press, the world's leading news organization. Rich Bainey, welcome to the Politics Guys. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Yeah, um, You know, you've been, if my uh, calculations are correct, you've been in the news business now for over 40 years, and you've been a top executive for over 20. So you certainly have a a wealth of experience. And the first question that comes to mind for me is, what would you say have been the biggest changes in the business over that time? Oh, well, the changes in the business have been uh, dramatic. It just so happens I'm a member of a a generation of uh, media professionals and journalists who started our career right around the time of, of Watergate and all the president's men. And in fact, I entered school at Northern Kentucky University in the fall of 1974 at the time when all kinds of kids wanted to go to journalism school because they had, <clears throat> because they had read or seen all the president's men and they wanted to bring down a government. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter what government, <laughs> might be a mayor, might be a, a president, whoever, but that was a that was the midst of the absolute peak golden era for daily newspapers. Right, big city, well funded, very profitable businesses. Uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times, Tampa—I mean, all across the the country—and every one of them had huge newsrooms full of well trained journalists. And so that's where I started my career. Sort of a little bit later in, the, in my career is when we've gone through the technological revolution as we move from what I really think was just a, a warm-up pioneer period when uh, journalism, news, and entertainment were delivered off of printing presses or broadcast towers um, all before the worldwide digital grid was assembled, which we call the Internet which is just the, uh, has caused an, an incredible convulsion and revolution in everything we do. So, it, you know, on the backside of that, now with the Internet, um, which I love, by the way, you know, free speech is freer than it's ever been in human history. Right. Uh, the world is going to be, has been and will be changed in profound ways due to everybody's ability to be a publisher, for everybody in the almost in the world today, seven uh, seven out of ten people on Earth have access to a to a mobile communications device. It's just incredible. So, my career has spanned from a period when people like me as editors had incredible control, and if we were not interested in a story, uh, quite often it would never be heard. To a day when there's a worldwide digital grid and and Free speech just oozes and flies in all directions. There are almost no protected channels. Uh, it's just, it's an incredible transition. I've, I'm so thankful uh, 
that I had the opportunity to work on both sides of this revolution um, because it has been very hard on the business, but very good for free speech. You know, uh, to kind of follow up on that a little bit, do you ever feel that, that this transparency, which certainly in, in a lot of ways is is a good thing, and, and the uh, breaking down of the gatekeepers in a way, do you ever feel that maybe that can sometimes go too far, or has it yeah. gone too far? Oh, it goes too far every day. <laughs> I, it, uh, but I guess, you know, I'm a free speech fundamentalist, and I, you know, I I see things and I hear things and we get in the middle of things that are disturbing to me uh, on the on the Internet, on Internet platforms. But I guess I feel like it, it's self-regulating uh, yeah. and over time things will balance out and uh, we're still better off with the messiness, the ugliness. Uh, we're still better off than we are at a, in a at a time in history when only a few people control the distribution channels for information. Right. Now, you mentioned that the Internet uh, has been a, a major source of, well, change and a major convulsion in the news industry. Do, do you get the sense that that, that that is a sense kind of dying down, that the big aftershocks are pretty much all gone? Or do you expect to see more sort of really radical changes for the industry? I think we're we're just on the cusp of another round of fairly dramatic change, and that's as sort of, sort of the internet style of navigation, internet-like distribution comes to television. And you and many of your listeners, I'm sure, uh, are, are Netflix users, Apple TV, Roku, um, these what we call over-the-top television providers that dis- distribute content across the internet. So. I'm 60 years old. I've spent most of my life uh, in a television world where television is largely defined by its distribution platforms. You're you're a cable subscriber and you watch what's on cable. You're you're a broadcast viewer and you watch what comes in over the air. Now with with uh, over the top and internet distribution of television, the viewer largely takes control and can pick and choose from different sources and create their own television experience. Very, very different uh, than when TV was really defined by its distribution platform. And the other major change is, is, is I don't know how old you are, Michael, but um, you're probably also accustomed to television that happens on a schedule. Mm-hmm. That uh, whether an event is live or not, it's still only on at a specific time. And we're quickly moving into an environment where live actually means live and only live. And everything else is completely on demand right. if it's not actually live. And if you just think about the structure of our industry, which has been so scheduled, looking at the channel grid, what's on at 8.30? What comes on at 9? This is just a dramatic, dramatic change for the structure of the television industry. Right. And so one of the things that you mentioned is what I've heard sometimes called unbundling, the idea that people can kind of pick and choose the parts of what yeah. they want. Uh, do you feel that's had a – I guess you feel that's had a pretty dramatic uh, effect on, on your industry then, the unbundling yes. news? Oh, yes, un- unbundling. Uh, you know, because if you think about cable package, cable television is the way 8 out of 10 Americans um, buy and consume their, their video entertainment today. You, you bought it in packages. You didn't uh, buy in the industry what's called a la carte. 
and the way things have been structured is if you bought a la carte, it sometimes would cost you as much or more than if you just said, oh, what the heck, I'll take the package. But with over-the-top television and this unbundling or skinny bundles that you hear about, it does put um, a level of control in the consumer's hands that makes this more a la carte or uh, picking and choosing or unbundling, and you assemble the bundle um, much more realistic. It's a it's a absolutely dramatic change. Uh, uh, do you are you use Netflix or oh, yeah. TV or anything? Oh yeah, definitely big Netflix user. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you see just the um, dramatic difference. I, I think we knew this was coming when when cable companies started putting uh, digital video recorders DVRs into right. their systems, and we start, started to see quickly that people time shift. Mm-hmm. And that even today, if you look at linear distribution of TV through DVRs, about 40% of prime time or more today is not watched uh, at the scheduled time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's recorded and watched later. That told us that what's coming is, uh, is a consumer experience where live really does mean live and everything else is on demand. Right. You know, traditionally, at least this is what I've heard, traditionally uh, how network news worked or how big big news organizations worked is that the hard news would sort of be subsidized by other parts of the news, sort of that were the hard news might be the kind of broccoli on the platter and the other stuff, was, you know. And, and it seems yeah. to me that with unbundling, that sort of model is falling apart. Is that, is that been your experience? Yeah, I mean, that's somewhat the risk. Um, but news divisions historically have been profitable. Our, our news operations are profitable today. Uh, but if you sort of think, just use a local television station as an example where you have a network affiliation that provides your prime time, ABC, NBC, CBS, or Fox, you have your local news, you have syndicated programming, and each one flows into the other, creating this sort of holistic, uh, this holistic day. Uh when you unbundle that, or as it's unbundled, uh, and the same with the network news that runs at 6.30 or 7 or whatever, and you don't have that flow through, it changes the economics and the dynamics right. uh, of what people watch. Because, you know, people used to watch the local news, sit through Dan Rather, and then on comes Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Jeopardy goes into prime time. Right. Um, now they have to decide to watch the, the evening news, right? And um it's just very different. So uh, I think, yes, what we're wondering is what's it going to be like when uh, when news is something that's not intrusive, it's something that's only consumed by choice, and uh, to what degree will people choose it, right. especially if it does include include the Kardashians. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, so if, if I have my history correct, Scripps grew in part by buying local newspapers, local ra- local TV and radio stations. And, you know, some yeah. people kind of commenting on this, if, not just with Scripps, but more generally, have said that their concern is that it results in or it can result in kind of a cookie cutter sameness. And so whether you're in Portland, Oregon or Portland, Maine, you get the same sort of news. I'm thinking now particularly of, of not of scripts, but like USA Today, they bought all these you know properties and wherever you go, it, it looks the same and it kind of feels yeah. the same. Uh, do you think that's a, that's a fair criticism? I think it's a fair criticism that it might look the same. The music might be the same. Templates might look the same. 
uh, for reasons of trying to uh, reduce costs on the production side. But the content, e even in many of these consolidated companies, you know, the content is really driven by people who sit in that local newsroom. Uh, I can tell you, you know, I, I sit today as chairman and CEO of a large news company. Um, I find out, I find out uh, when we make mistakes about the same time anybody else does. Hmm. Uh, we don't create policy from the top down. Uh, for many years, Scripps did uh, unified presidential election endorsements and required every newspaper to endorse the same candidate. Oh, wow. Uh, we did away with that about 14 years ago when, when myself and the then CEO, a guy named Ken Lowe, when we came in, we said, we don't think that makes sense anymore. But no, I, I really tell you, most news organizations, decisions are made very close to the ground, uh, often by individuals. Uh, newsrooms are fairly diverse, especially in politics, politically. And um, no, I, 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 you know, I get that all the time, and I, I just don't think it's the case because I've worked in those environments, and we have. There's no way we could sit here in Cincinnati and try to dictate editorial policy or shape the news in Phoenix or right. Denver or Portland. I, I just don't even know how it would be possible. You know, I, one, other, one other thing that sometimes people say sort of in, in defense of large corporate ownership is that when you have a, a small local station, they might not necessarily have the muscle to stand up to local businesses and institutions, whereas if you have a big you know, corporate entity behind you, that gives you kind yeah. of the ability to do that. Uh, absolutely. I, I, I'll tell you, and I, we send lawyers into court uh, pretty much every day uh, to, to stand behind our journalists. I'll give you a good example. We had a small newspaper and a, and a TV operation that did some stories on in Indiana and in Tennessee on concealed carry of, of, of weapons. And what we found, what they found is there were a lot of people who were convicted of crimes that had concealed carry permits. And it just showed the system was not catching these people. And they were get, then being given permits to carry weapons. And they, you know, commit another crime. Well, the NRA got very upset and yeah. did everything they can could to really lean on uh, these folks. And I think it was... Uh, Thank goodness the power of scripts behind them to stand behind them, uh, both economically and legally, and uh, you know, and push through. Mm -hmm. So I mean, they, I tell you, the NRA lit up my phone and did everything they could, including right. interrupting a speech I made. Wow! Uh, confronting me at a speech, and um, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And people like scripts, we do that with pride. I. I I can give you a lot of examples where we do things that are not in our economic uh, interest in order to support those uh, important, small, diverse voices in markets across the country. Mm. You know, the, the people of, of a certain age, uh, I guess middle-aged and older, uh, uh, Scripps is kind of synonymous with, with newspapers. At least it was to me growing yeah. up in Cleveland, which was a, which had uh, Scripps papers. Uh, yes. But in 2014, after you merged with Journal Communications, you actually spun off your newspaper holdings. And I remember hearing about that and thinking, you know, that's a smart move. They're cutting their losses because you'd have to be nuts to stay in the newspaper business these days. Uh, well, was I sort of on on track on that or maybe not so much? I don't know. Yeah. And if, 
like you say, script started in newspapers, been in radio and television for many years. We, uh, as many people probably know, I'm, I'm sitting about 10 feet from where one of my best friends, a guy named Ken Lowe, came up with the idea for Home and Garden Television, HGTV. Mm -hmm. uh, that's it's a Scripps brand, Food Network, you know, on cable is a Scripps brand. So it's a very entrepreneurial developing company. And I should mention, we have a, a new millennial news brand called Newsy that uh, right. uh, ho hopefully most young people would be familiar with today. But, yeah, we, uh, you know, I, I was sort of watching it and finally went to the Scripps family on our board and said, look, I think it's time that we part ways with the legacy business. The business that I grew up in. Right. And it was gut-wrenching, difficult. Um, took us about a year to work through it, make sure we were making the right decision. And we brought all the publishers and editors in one day. I told them what was going to happen. I got about two minutes in. I cried the rest of the way. About half of them cried. Mm -hmm. uh, it was terrible. Um, but, you know... Things do change, and um, in order for us to serve communities and to be viable and, and, and pay the bills and pay for people's mortgages and health care and everything else, uh, sometimes you have to make difficult decisions. Yeah, I, I, it, was, it was horrible. I, 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 I don't know if I could do it again. I, on top of that, I closed several newspapers, which was also yeah. just uh, – well, I remember growing up in Cleveland, used to be a two-newspaper town. You had the Plain Dealer and the Press, and then the Press yeah. went away, and then the Plain Dealer now I think only publishes three days a week. And it's when yeah. you grew up with that physical paper, there's there's that tradition and that feeling behind it. And it's it's really sad to see it go away, even though I don't get, you know, I don't subscribe to any physical papers. I subscribe online. So, I, you know, it's, 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 very, it's a very difficult thing. Absolutely. It's uh, people of my age and yours, you know, we'll, we'll get to look back over 20 years and just see the effect of not having in any market and anybody's sitting in today, you have in a market the size of Cincinnati or let's say Denver or Nashville, Tennessee, those towns used to have several hundred more professionally trained, decently paid journalists crawling that market, those towns, every day. And that's not there now. Yeah. And, you know, what's the effect? Well, yeah. And Hopefully that, offset by, by the just explosion of free speech, but we'll see. Yeah, and that, that's my concern. I know a number of people share that concern that the sort of investigative journalism that takes time and resources. Uh, you know, I, I just recently saw not too long ago the movie Spotlight about what the Globe did with the, the Catholic Church sex scandal. And I yeah. think I wonder to myself, in today's environment, do newsrooms have the, the resources? Can they afford to do things like that, and I'm concerned that in many cities, maybe the answer is not so much anymore. Yeah, you see it shifting. More than big city newspapers, the platform for an awful lot of investigative journalism today is becoming documentary mm -hmm. and also podcasting. Right, right. Uh, you're seeing a lot of that work, and the organizations that do it are different. The Center for Investigative uh, Journalism out of California, I think. Kentucky, Ohio, both have very good investigative uh, journalism organizations that then people then share. You're, you're right. We are still in that transition period when we're figuring out and need to figure out how that kind of work is going to be financed. Yeah. We, we still invest in 
fair amount of that as a company. And we're a publicly traded company. Uh, but we also have a controlling shareholder in the Scripps family that takes a very long-term point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, I've given you talked a little bit about sort of that changeover, that gut-wrenching changeover when you you know got when you spun off the newspapers. I'm wondering, just more generally, do you feel that the the change over time from first to being a, a newspaper company, then newspaper slash broadcast, and now broadcast and digital. Do you feel that that's changed in, in terms of the, the the type and the quality of the sort of news that people get? Um, uh, uh, sure. Well, uh, it's definitely changed. I'm not so sure the quality is is different. The big difference today is that the the consumer is more the ultimate editor, mm-hmm. and you know a consumer needs to build the skills to pull from different sources and, in some ways, uh, you know, assemble their their own experience. There's a lot of high quality work available. Uh, what what frankly has really disappeared from the business is a lot of what was just stenography, right. Uh, a lot of stuff we used to call journalism was really just stenography where you, you go to a press conference, you take down what the mayor says, you go back, you type it up, and you, you, know, you put it out. Yeah. Uh, Compelling stuff, gone. yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, there's no need for it. Right. That happens in real time on the, on the Internet today. I, I would say, you know, net-net, there's less. There's definitely net-net today in U.S. markets less enterprise reporting than there was 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't imagine any community that can be better because there's less enterprise reporting. But, uh, you know, we'll just have to see how that develops over time. Right. I can tell you scripts. Uh, th- th- there are Cox, Hearst. I mean, there are, there are a number of companies that do very good work today, but um, not as many as there used to be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned podcast briefly and i know this summer scripts acquired the podcast platform stitcher which i believe that's going to be part of uh, midroll which is a podcast advertising network you acquired the previous summer so so pretty clearly scripts believes in podcasts which i think is good news for obvious reasons and (laughs) yeah so i was wondering how do you think podcasts have influenced the news and what do you think their future holds both that i guess at scripts and more broadly um, podcasting is emerging as a very important platform for uh, you know nonfiction storytelling uh, for you know for for journalism and it's it's because uh, all of a sudden like we say I mean just about everybody carries in their hand all day long a, a, a an incredibly strong communication device on a smartphone so it's the you know it's the ear it's the earbuds revolution whether People listen on a treadmill or where they listen in their car. That's where Stitcher comes in. Stitcher is a very strong brand in connected cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, walking to work or just uh, if you have a few minutes and you're, you're sitting out enjoying the sun on campus where you spend a lot of your time, Michael. Uh-huh. Um, it, 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 it's just a new, it's created a new space and a new platform thanks to the technology. Um, and audio is just such an incredibly strong experience. It's so intimate. Uh, when we bought Midroll, I, I don't know if you know one of our uh, big podcasts is Mark Marin's sure. WTF. Oh, yeah. And Mark interviewed uh, 
President Obama came and sat in Mark's garage in L.A. and reported a podcast. And I thought, eh, okay, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good gimmick. You know, we've got the president doing one of our podcasts. Sure. Well, but when I listened to it, you know, to hear, the, uh, to hear President Obama's voice in that very intimate way talking about personal subjects, it just connects. It's just uh, it's yeah. a good platform. Yeah, it was a great it was a great show. Absolutely. I mean, it was more yeah. than just more than just a gimmick, as you know, as you, as you said. So, um, you know, I, I'm wondering pretty clearly media is more ubiquitous than ever. And we mostly, I think, see that as a great thing in a lot of ways it is. But some people have argued that it actually makes it harder to be well informed because trying to keep up with everything that's just thrown out there is like sort of trying to drink out of a fire hose. And I'm wondering what you think about that. You know, is, is media, is this much media more of a curse than a blessing? Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I think about that all the time when I just, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, on one hand, on one hand, I often think, yes, how do you produce something that cuts through something that's really important? How do you, how do you, how do you get the hook in, you know, in, in all the noise for uh, people to know about something that, that's critically important to their lives or to communities? That, that's one side of it, and yes, I worry about it. The other side of it is I wonder if it's just, uh, you know, generational. I, I remember my parents talking about when they hooked up the telephones where they lived out in the country in, in rural Kentucky, and people really fretted, you know, well, this telephone is actually here in the house. Does that mean somebody could call me anytime? <laughs> right. and, uh, is that intrusive? Is that going to change our lives? And, uh, you know, and I've studied and looked at how there was a lot of pressure to try to prevent consumer photography just around the time of the Civil War. It's fascinating, a feeling that, you know, capturing and creating this media out of people's lives, how is it going to damage society? It was a, it's fascinating to read about. So, so yeah, I worry about it, but then I also worry that I'm just a guy who's in the midst of a technological revolution, mm-hmm. and that um, uh, you know I'm, I'm I shouldn't worry about it. Yeah. That technology has worked, and, and people have commanded it, and, and I shouldn't just I just shouldn't worry so much. So, I, as you can tell. I see that occupies a lot of nights from about three to three fifty nine. Yeah, worrying about that, uh, especially as somebody who's accountable. Sure. For a lot of the media we put out, but I don't know. Like I said, on balance, I just always come down to uh, freer and more unvarnished, uh, real free speech uh, carries the day. Yeah. Well, and, and, I don't know. We'll see. And, and of course, there have been there's been an awful lot of work put into designing various algorithms and so forth and methods to sort of uh, summarize and 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 boil this down to the really important stuff. And I guess on the plus side is that can be very helpful. But on the on the negative side, some people say, well, the problem is is the algorithms are things that sort of feed you more of what you like, and some people tie yes. that into political polarization and saying that if you know and. To me, it's an argument for the old-fashioned role of major media gatekeeping, and I know some people have problems with that, uh, but 
Yeah. But I think there's really a place for human beings sitting down at a table and saying, what is important based on my years of experience? And that to me, and maybe it is because I'm middle-aged, but that to me feels more legitimate and, uh, and authoritative and gives me, I don't know, a, a more comfortable feeling than just this, just, you know, plethora of stuff out there. But again, yeah. maybe, maybe I'm just old, you know? Yeah. Well, we call trusted, you know, a trusted source. Yeah. And it's very similar. There are so many similarities between higher ed and, and media uh, using that premise of, of a trusted source, right. a, a distillation, right? Um, I don't know. I could say we'll, we'll all know in a few years whether we have uh, created a these platforms and, and empowered a generation to change the world in wonderful ways or whether or whether right. made a mess. Well, you know, a, a lot of people who criticize the news media for various things, I, I tend to I tend to sort of defend them in the sense that the environment has shifted and, you know, almost everyone who writes about the news business says it's gotten so much more competitive over the last 3 or 4 decades. Uh and that that has led to a lot of changes and I think for the most part we tend to associate more competition with better outcomes, but I don't know uh, about that necessarily. I mean, what do you what do you see as the the pros and the cons of a so much more competitive environment for the news? Well, I'll tell you, one of the absolute pros is that the consumer uh, wins. Uh, you know, what you had happen business wise, economically to the media industry is through technology, efficiency has been. Uh, pushed into the business, and the consumer now uh, has a lot of control. I'll, I'll give you one very tangible example. For many years, in a, uh, most cities in America, if you wanted to sell a $100 bicycle, <clears throat> you had to buy a $50 uh, classified ad. Mm-hmm. That was the only, that was the only right. viable way to sell that $100 bike. Today, through Craigslist and other platforms, that, that's very easy to do, and, and you'll keep all or most of that 100 bucks. So while that has been very hard on us as a business, it has been a great benefit to the consumer. And at the, you know, at the same time, if, if you're an organization in town and you have some event or something that where you really need to gather a crowd, used to be you couldn't do it without us. Uh, pretty easy to, today to do it yourself. Yeah. Um, so I. I and I mean, think about the access to public records that that regular voters uh, and consumers have today. That we used to have to to pay people to actually go to a courthouse and pull a file and make notes. Um, you know, it's just it's a dramatic change on the consumer side, unbelievably empowering for consumers and voters. Right. Uh, yeah. But like you say, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I, I certainly can see on the plus that I know for me, it's totally changed how I how I live and do my work as a political scientist. Of course, my concern yeah. is that so much of that information is can be easily taken out of context and someone like, well, a professional yeah. journalist or a political scientist, someone with the background, you know, knows how to interpret that in a in a you know, in a more contextual way. And, and I understand that introduces its own bias. So I feel, yeah. It, yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag for me, I guess, in the end. It is. 
you know, I, I sometimes I speak to um, reporters and editors and news directors, and they, they most of them say the same thing. And I say, yeah, I also remember elections where, you know, like, uh, what's it, how many years ago, we, we sort of, you know, uh, an awful lot of newspapers had given it to Hillary well before she had earned it against Barack Obama. Right. And um, so I, I could say, yeah, I, I, I've spent my career trying to lead or be a trusted source. Uh, we'll, we'll just we'll see if there's enough economic value in the future to pay for trusted sources. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it seems, at least to me, that there's some evidence that for certain audiences, there is like, for instance, uh, uh, Bloomberg has some pay services that people are willing to spend a lot of money for. Or sure. The Economist yep. is a weekly magazine that costs uh, it's not inexpensive. And so it seems to me there's a market there, but maybe not a mass market for that sort of that sort of trusted source information. I don't know that. That's the you 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 hit right on it. I mean, the Wall Street Journal is a very strong brand. Yeah. Um, but what's gone is that day when uh, the CEO of a company and a guy on the factory floor read the exact same thing. Right. Right. Watched the exact same thing. That was a maybe that was the anomaly that that was just of a time in America and in this world because it certainly wasn't like that before that in human history. Mm-hmm. And gosh, I, I hope it's there's another period like that again. But that's not um, yeah. it doesn't appear to be what we're setting up. Yeah. And there's that, that, that concern then that that's what's sort of helping to drive polarization and drive us apart and that we end up with these different niches and tiers and so forth. And we don't have yeah. that unifying. Everyone listens to Walter, watches Walter Cronkite sort of thing, you know. Yeah. So, so I remember uh, in 90. Uh, before we were getting ready to launch uh, Home and Garden, HGTV, Home and Garden Television, I was talking to a bunch of our editors, and I had really, you know, thrown my efforts and my career behind my friend's idea, who wanted to start a cable network, and and a lot of editors saying, "No, wait a minute! If we do home and garden programming 24 hours a day, I mean, how are people going to know about what's going on in North Korea? They won't, <laughs> right? You know, uh, is it?" If they want to consume knitting all day, are we going to feed that? Yeah. And um, trying to say, well, isn't it up to them? If they only care about knitting, and and from there they kind of like to hear about roses. Um, are they somehow required to dedicate some yeah. some amount of time on North Korea? That doesn't sound like. Uh, doesn't sound like the way we constructed the uh, this country. Yeah, well, you know, it, and it's interesting you, you mentioned that because it sometimes I, I'll have students in my media class. I'm actually teaching a politics and media class this semester, and and invariably one of them will say, "Well, why doesn't why don't the big news stations why don't they just stop?" doing all this frivolous stuff like whatever knitting or roses and why don't they just cover hard news and and my response to them invariably is well they kind of want to stay in business i imagine and so <laughs> and, and but but to me you know you mentioned earlier that the great thing about the new uh, media universe is that the consumer gets what they want and to me that's sort of the great thing and maybe the troubling thing is that uh you know, the consumer gets what they want, right? And, and if the consumer just wants light lifestyle kind of news without a lot of depth, the concern is that, well, 
what are the effects? I mean, for me as a political scientist, what are the effects going to be on our democracy, on our society? And as you said, you know, that's we're, we're kind of conducting an awfully big experiment on that right now. Yes. Oh, it's a worldwide experiment. But, but you know, it's also you, you see what's captured on um, smartphones and settings and places around the world and then there for all to see. I yeah. mean, it's um, you just hope there are positive effects there that that offset any of this other noise we're going to have to work through. Yeah, definitely. So moving on, looking at current politics in the news media, uh, do you think there have been any unique challenges for news organizations covering the 2016 presidential race, or is it just kind of more or less the same, just with maybe a few larger-than-life characters? Uh, no, 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 no. I, I, I personally believe in, uh, that this one's different. I, I think what we're seeing you know, or what certainly what we saw through the summer were, were the sort of the peak moments of, a, uh, of what probably some people would consider a, almost like a peasant's uprising in both parties. Yeah. Where the, you know, the, uh, the leadership didn't see it coming and should have seen it coming. Uh, you know, just to, I was, this summer, I, we're getting ready for the conventions. We have an army of reporters covering the conventions and the election. Uh, and to think that, you know, that Donald Trump and, Ber- and Bernie Sanders, a socialist, could get this far, uh, tells you that there's something going on. And I, you know, I just think you're, you know, you've come through a period where there have been just, you know, millions and millions of manufacturing jobs have been lost, and real wages have not increased for 15 years. And I understand leadership's trying to do that to increase opportunity through globalization, most of which, and free markets, most of which I absolutely agree with. But you got to remember that um, if you leave a bunch of people behind, uh, they're going to get out the pitchforks and the, and, the, and the torches. Right. And that's, to me, that's exactly what we've seen in both parties. And I, I have to tell you, as a business leader, uh, I, I feel accountable. And I, I think those of us in business and political leadership, um, we, we need to pay attention yeah. and understand that the decisions we make, uh, if we don't, you don't like elections like this, well, look in the mirror. Let's right. figure out what we need to do. Right. Uh, so I, but this is uh, the things Donald Trump says. I, you know, you'd think that would bring a candidate down, but it certainly hasn't so far. He has strong, strong supporters. Well, you know, it's just amazing. I've not seen one like this in my in my experience. Well, you know, one thing that I've noticed with this election and also kind of leading up to it is uh, some folks have argued that we're becoming a what they what they call a post fact society. And it used to be that yeah. the, the the phrase was you're entitled to your own opinions, but not to your own facts. But I, you know, there are there are fact checking sites that I'm, I know you're, you're very familiar with them. And it seems like when, when you when you fact check, for instance, Donald Trump, who's sort of the culmination of this trend, so much of what he says, like I was against the war in Iraq, is just verifiably clearly false. And yet it doesn't seem to matter. And it seems to me that that's not how it used to work. I, I, I don't know. But you've obviously been, you know, part of this far more closely for longer than I have. Is that, is that your sense too, that facts don't seem to matter as much anymore? 
it, it's uh, very extreme this time around, but it, it's not unheard of in many other, uh, yeah, there have been elections over there. You probably teach your students about some of them that where things that happened or rumors or stories or incidents uh, just blew up and took control of an election cycle somehow. Yeah. But yeah, this one's, um, I'll tell you, many years of media research shows that what what people believe to be true is the same as what they agree with. Yeah, definitely. And if they don't, if they don't agree with it, it's it's not true. You're just seeing that in the most extreme, um, you know, in the in the current election. It's it's um, you know we've had to do a lot of training and education to you know, make sure reporters have a good understanding of the, uh, of the underbelly and the dynamics yeah. of the election. Well, you know, some people have argued specifically with regards to Donald Trump that the media has really not been doing their job when it comes to him in, this, in, in the sense of not treating him like a serious candidate, not, ask, not really kind of pushing him in the way that maybe they've pushed Hillary Clinton. Uh, some people, for instance, just recently, there was the, uh, Matt Lauer did the, uh, the uh, interview thing with, uh, with Trump and Clinton was roundly criticized for being much harder on Clinton than on Trump and not following up and calling him out on his, on his well, what are lies, essentially, and giving him all this free public. Publicity. Uh, do you think that's a do you think that's a fair criticism of how the political media has reacted to Donald Trump's rise? Yeah, I, I don't think I think we we ask the hard questions and we push pretty hard. But he he clearly knows that his his core supporters, um, if he says it's not true, they'll say, hey, you know, they, they misquoted uh, the Donald here. They're not being fair to him. Right. He's he's learned that uh, if you just sort of go ahead on uh, with a convincing uh, look on your face, that your your core supporters will you know go along with you. Yeah. Uh, but he's a he's a almost a unique candidate. I don't I don't think any of us have have covered somebody like him. Uh, has the kind of following he has, but at the same time, uh, and- uh, just a very different style. Hillary benefits from it greatly. I think about some of the issues she's trying to work through right now. In most elections, these these would be uh, much more dramatic oh, yeah. than they are in this case. And to me, almost it's a sense of perhaps that because Donald Trump is so unique that uh, there's there's got to be, I would imagine, for a journalist, a, a learning curve in trying to figure out how to approach him and how to cover him because if for decades you've been covering traditional candidates all of a sudden somebody throws out the playbook it you maybe need to take some time to readjust and figure out how to how to uh, approach something like that yeah well he's you know he says what he says and then we put it on the air or we put it in in text and uh, but it does not seem to have any any effect um, on the, the polls of his court when polled his core supporters yeah We'll, we'll we'll see how far we'll see how far that uh, that actually goes here in, in not too long. Yeah, I, we talk to people on the street, so a lot of say, "Yeah, okay, yeah, he's he's not perfect, but uh, I think I'll give him a try." Right, right. You know, I'm I'm scratching and biting and clawing to try to stay in the middle class, and uh, nobody else is helping me. So what the yeah. heck? Let's yeah. see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Um. 
Uh, I know we're, we're running a little short on time, but one more question, if you don't mind, before, before uh, we go. Uh, a little lighter question, actually. Uh, where do you go to get your political news? I mean, obviously, aside from WCPO, which is our local script station here yeah. in Cincinnati, right? Uh, but right. What, what sort of sources do you find yourself going to again and again? Well, I guess I'm, I'm kind of the new consumer. I, I, um, I, you know, follow just a long <clears throat> list of different kind of sources that would start with, <clears throat> you know, I read, and so, you know, I'm, I'm a registered independent, uh, like many people in my business, I'm a, I'm a, an aggressive independent. Uh, so I, I read the New York times. I also read the wall street journal. I read the New York Post. I love the New York Post yeah. because of its how well it represents um, its its readership. Right. Uh, I look at Politico. You know, obviously, I consume what we do on Newsy that comes from a millennial point of view, and BuzzFeed, and Vice. Uh, these new brands that um, uh, have a more analytical and unvarnished sort of look at the news. And I, I guess Politico. I read. Um, many, many local newspapers um, on their websites and local TV stations. and So I, I, I sort of gather wide and I, I um, you know, some di- different sites. I, one of my favorites is a site called The Bitter Southerner. Oh, okay. I've never seen it. It's a um, sort of a, a look at things from, from a Southern point of view, which, which, you know, just happens to be uh, what I am culturally, right. I guess. But it, um, I guess it, it's interesting you ask that question. I'm, I guess I'm the new consumer that has to go out and gather and assemble uh, my own story. I wouldn't say I look to one specific trusted source. I, I, I read Mother Jones. Wow. Okay. Uh, which, which comes from a very left point of Definitely. view. Definitely. I think does some great work. So yeah, you definitely have a very a very wide and varied news diet for sure. Yeah, but I guess that would that would make sense given 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 your your position and background and so forth. So uh, I think that's just generally one closing point. That's just generally a good point for for everyone. Now you might not have the time to to spend on so many sources like like Richard or like like I do, but it's generally a pretty good idea to not draw from the same everything from the same ideological well. Absolutely. That's right. So that's right. All right. Well we'll end with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rich Benny, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with me today. Yeah, I sure appreciate you making time to have me and uh, uh, if you have any other news related questions, ring me up. Oh great. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news throughout the week, and where you can join in, too, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would really appreciate it if you could take just a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. And if you like what we're doing and want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a dollar or two would really help. You'll find donation links on our site, politicsguys.com.